This is Wahid Jensen, and you are listening to Away Beyond the Rainbow. And welcome back to Away Beyond the Rainbow, this podcast series dedicated to Muslims experiencing same-sex attractions who want to live a life true to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Islam. I'm your host, Wahid Jensen, and thank you for joining me in today's episode. In today's episode, we will focus on contemporary challenges pertaining to gender dysphoria and the transgenderism movement. And Brother Mubin Vaid is joining me again, and we will be focusing on sex change surgeries, as well as the modern transgenderism movement and its ripple effects. So let's get started, inshallah. Welcome back, Brother Mubin. Assalamu alaikum. It's always a pleasure to have you and for joining me today. Um, the episode today is going to be focused on contemporary challenges. So we're going to be talking about the sex reassignment surgeries. And we're also going to be talking about the current trans movement and the ripple effects that we are witnessing nowadays because of that. So um, starting with the first section of the episode, we're going to be f- talking about the sex reassignment surgeries from a um, social perspective as well as a religious pers- perspective. So can you tell us a little bit about you know the particular positions or famous cases from the previous centuries when it comes to the Islamic positions and the fatwas um, as far as sex change surgeries or sex reassignment surgeries are concerned. So in the article part two, you had mentioned the position of Khomeini uh, from Iran as well as Jad al-Haq and the case of Sayyid Sali, and you elaborated on that a lot. Um, so were these fatwas in relation to the intersex persons or is this or are, do these fatwas also deal with individuals who have gender dysphoria but do not have any underlying physiological uh, etiologies? I, I think the best way to address this question is to start off by making the distinction between, um, you know, Ayatollah Khomeini and then uh, Jad al-Haq and uh I think that's sort of one stream of fatawa on this topic. The other stream relates to Khomeini. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will say that collectively, all of them appear to be cases of what we refer to today as gender dysphoria, what used to be called gender identity disorder. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking about cases that are psychologically grounded. For the most part. No, I'll, I'll return to that as we explore a little bit the two strains of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, with respect to Khomeini, and I'll start with him because I think that that particular development is is very interesting one for a few reasons. I'll say that firstly, in the aftermath of not only that fatwa, but I'd say in recent years especially, we have had a number of Shia thinkers uh, scholars and others, that have seemed to deny that Khomeini ever endorsed sex change surgeries in any capacity. Mm -hmm. And they insist that that fatwa 
was only speaking to the junta, which is the intersex uh, person or mm-hmm. individual, and that people who have propagated this idea of him endorsing uh, sex change surgeries or sex reassignment surgeries for individuals with gender dysphoria have misread, misappropriated, and misinterpreted his views. Um, I have to confess, I'm not sure how much of that is born out of embarrassment and just an attempt to sort of recover his reputation Mm -hmm. because they don't want uh, a great scholar in their own tradition to be associated with that particular position, especially if it's something that they just instinctively um, don't like. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And the reason I say that is because the actual text of Khomeini's on this issue, which are not solitary. Um, you have a number of masail or questions and answers that he responds to and explores and discusses, and as I recall them at least, um, that make it quite clear that he's speaking of someone that has some sort of internal condition through which they get, you know, surgical adjustment and from there have to now reconcile themselves to the sharia and understand what their responsibilities are vis-a-vis the gendered aspects of Islam. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, there are also stories out there with an alleged backstory. This alleged backstory has to do with a man that had, you know, what we call today, obviously, gender dysphoria, um, began dressing as a woman and took on a female name. Uh, Khomeini apparently disapproved of this until he eventually met this trans woman, Mm -hmm. quote-unquote. Spoke to him, confronted him quite a little bit, but they apparently had some sort of sit-down. And this was a trans woman that came across or was, you know, Lano's best, quite pious, reverential towards the imams, the Shia imams here, etc., etc. And... Uh, upon meeting this figure, it is said that Khomeini changed his mind on the subject. I have not investigated this issue deeply enough to know whether or not the, the story is accurate, or and so I can't speak to the veracity of the story. I have come across it um, in a few sources, so I, d- I don't know for certain what to think of it totally, although that's, that's a story that is mentioned. Mm-hmm. Now, In the aftermath of the fatawa that Khomeini gives, you do have the analysis, which is also included in that section, of Ali Akbar Siyasi, which uh, distinguishes between the internal state of an individual, the batin, and the external physical form of the individual, or the zahir, what is apparent. And for the listeners, just for them to know, so Ali Akbar Siyasi is a prominent psychologist at the time of Khomeini, correct? Correct, Mm -hmm. correct, and I believe, continued writing after him. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what you have as a result of the discourse and intellectual strain of thought and legal rulings that they advanced was the emergence, especially I'd say over the past few decades, of a new type of deterministic view on gender, which is to say you are still either a male or a female intrinsically. Mm-hmm. Gender is not fluid. What they're doing, however, is that they are giving a place of primacy to the internal self over the external one. Mm -hmm. And so a biological female, for instance, someone born female, who 
who is internally male is not an internal male who is, you know, externally female. That is a male for all intents and purposes. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the question of transitioning surgically is a must. It is not an option. Okay. Right? In this reading, it would be an obligation on this biological female to go through surgical transition. And it would be sinful to refrain and to remain a female. And that remaining a biological, physical female, someone that other people look at as female, would be the equivalent of allowing a man into female spaces. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes a sort of violation that has to get remedied. Which is why Iran as a country in general conducts a huge amount of sex change surgeries and sex reassignment surgeries in terms of numbers, uh, almost more than any country in the world. They're top three for sure. For a number of years, they were number one. They, in fact, the, the state, the government of Iran subsidizes sex change operations. So they happen quite often. That's very interesting. I should say. And I should say that many transgender advocates oppose the Iran model precisely because it undermines this notion of choice. It undermines this notion of gender fluidity. It doesn't allow for things like social transitioning. It, it seems very heavy-handed mm. and far too mm. deterministic for them to want to get on board with. Again, I am not an expert on Shiism, so these are things that I, I think someone from the Shia tradition could probably speak to with a bit more insight um, and probably a lot more detail. But, but this is at least what we've seen in Iran and what we've seen with legal developments within Shiism. Mm -hmm. Now, when we set sort of the Shiism question aside and we just focus on Sunnism, uh, we have really two critical fatawa that tend to come up from uh, very, you know, highly reputed and well-regarded scholars. Jad al Haq, right, who was a very, very Sheikh al Azhar, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so we're talking about a man who held a post that is considered a very, very uh, senior position, uh, the, the grand imam, if you will, of the al, al Azhar University, right. which is one of the preeminent schools of Islamic learning in the Muslim world. So, very prominent post and Sheikh Tantawi, who follows in his footsteps later on. Mm -hmm. Dan al fatwa and Ali Tantawi's, uh, Sheikh Tantawi's fatwa are effectively identical in wording. In fact, Tantawi takes Dan al fatwa and just regurgitates it. If you do a side-by-side -side comparison, you're getting the same fatwa. Um, so the Tantawi fatwa is really offered in a very particular context which has to do with this whole Sayyid Sali case that we write about. And, and people want to know more about it, can read the paper. But the the sort of high-level points or, or the broad strokes about this story is that you have a student in Azhar who goes and consults and, you know, begins to adopt a female identity, takes on the name Sally, travels to some other country, gets a sex reassignment surgery, comes back, and now wants to be accepted as a female in Azhar. Mm -hmm. This fatwa gets surfaced up to Tantawi, and it actually becomes a very prominent story in Egypt. Uh, this sort of Sayyid Sali figure is someone who is reported on in the news and in the papers, getting a lot of coverage. It was a major, big, big deal. 
right? And so it, it becomes a whole whole issue of, okay, well, what, what do we think about this as sort of scholarly tradition and all of that? Right. And Haq and Ayat and Tawi's Fatawa are, are interesting in that they, you know, for, they leave a lot of people dissatisfied. That's what they do, mm-hmm. right? And, and that happened at the time. And so far as their fatawa tend to bring up a lot of general ahadith about for every illness, there's a cure, right? right. Uh, things like that. Allah never has never uh, brought down any illness or ailment except that he has made for it the cure, right? right? Mm-hmm. Made available here somewhere. Um, and so you have these types of reports and narrations about seeking out cures and the importance of that. Um, you also have quite a bit that is clearly and unambiguously talking about physical corrective surgeries, mm-hmm. right? That through medical consultation, through discussions with doctors, if there are situations where you need to get um, a physical, uh, a physiological corrective surgery done there's no issue with that islamically no issue with that islamically and you know uh yeah always even quoted elsewhere saying you know this is this is an issue that is a medical issue meaning that if someone has some sort of physiological abnormality that can be corrected through surgery then it should be done so through the consultation of medical professionals Mm They don't, not only do they not speak to sort of the psychological transition of somebody who is internally something and physically something else, because they're dealing with really physical ailments, Mm -hmm. right? Not only do they not speak to the psychological thing, they explicitly say that just the changing of someone from one thing to another, a male to a female and vice versa, is impossible. And they just reject it in the same fatwa. Now, what, what sort of happened as far as I could tell, is that you had an academic paper that was written. Um, this was, I want to say it was published probably in the early 2000s. Um, I forgot the figure's name, who wrote it. But he translated the Jadar Haq and Tantawi Fatwa. He provided the backstory. And I think he actually did a, a, a decent and fair job when it came to glossing out the details of the Fatwa. I think there are cert- certain aspects of it that evince a lack of understanding of fiqh from the person who translated it, mm-hmm. which is tough. I mean, if, if you're not sort of really entrenched in fiqh, especially on issues like this, you're liable to misunderstand things. So the muhannat, for instance, is translated as the hermaphrodite, mm-hmm. even, though, even mm-hmm. though that's the effeminate male, right? That, that's not the hermaphrodite, that's the khunta. Right. That's not the muhannat. Right. There are things like that that are glaringly obvious mistranslations in English. Um, but in general, I think he captured a lot of what the fatwa was saying. And he, the the article, I, I'd have to go back and double check the author's name, I forgot. But he makes quite clear this point about they, they not only don't consider this whole notion of like sex change, they, don't, they just sort of reject it out of hand as even a possibility. Um, you have a number of later academic scholars that end up referring back to that paper and say, well, Jadat Haq and Tantawi endorsed right. Section 8 surgeries in Islam, and it becomes something that from that point forward really gets regurgitated in a number of academic works. Right. Um, and so if you're reading Western academic works, you'll come across this assertion that uh, Jadat Haq and Tantawi endorsed Section 8 surgeries, when in fact 
their fatawa don't ever endorse that at all. What they seem to endorse more properly is the notion that a person can go through a corrective surgery if, in fact, there is a deformity, disorder of development, abnormality of some sort that can be corrected or is amenable to uh, surgical correction. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, that's really what that case ends up being about. Uh, and I should say that even, even after Tantawi's fatwa, they believe Al-Azhar kicked out uh, this sort of Sayyid Sali figure from, from the Jamaat. So. SubhanAllah. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, very interesting how things progress throughout the years, SubhanAllah. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Um, so what are the ripple effects of these fatwas that we can see today? Yeah, well, I think, uh, well, I, I think I mentioned some of them, which is what's happened in Iran, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, the, the growth in sex change surgery, the subsidizing of them and all of that. I don't know that the Jad al-Hakr Tantawi fatwa really had a huge sort of earth-shattering impact in that to that extent, that major extent, simply because it didn't seem to really come out on the issue of transgenderism itself, Mm -hmm. right? You have had other fatawa and other scholarly committees that have weighed in on the topic, including, you know, the Muslim World League and the Organization of Islamic Scholars and this and that, and all of them have offered their thoughts, which is why in Sunnism, you really have a much more unified discussion on the prohibition uh, sex change or sex reassignment surgeries, whereas that's that's not the case within Shiism, where there appears to be some difference, and certainly much more uh, a different paradigm through which this whole issue is being looked at. Right, and a lot of best. Indeed. So, for those of us listening, um, we have this question, and we're like, okay, so what is Islam's formal position on same, on sex change operations, and on what grounds? Um, can we say that Islam prohibits or permits these kinds of surgeries? Yeah, so that's a good question. Well, there, there are a number of proofs. I'll, I'll start off by just saying plainly that the position of, you know, doing a sex change or a sex reassignment surgery, um, and I'm being a little deliberate with continuously mentioning both, only because language keeps changing, right? Um, right. Sort of what is the surgery doing? Is it just assigning you a new sex? Is it really trying to change that sex? Now they're talking about sex confirmation surgeries, right? That's like the mm. new verbiage or sex affirmation. Reaffirmation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. There's there's all this linguistic sort of mm. you know and there's right. so much there's so much buried and nested and in, in all of, of this course. that I'm I'm kind of mentioning both. So um right. that's because it, you know, obviously the, the language keeps changing so much. But in any mm-hmm. event, sort of uh general ruling on that um is that it is prohibited. Is that it is prohibited. And the mm-hmm. grounds for this are based on a number of proofs. For one, you have verses of the Quran, or you do have a verse of the Quran, uh where Iblis speaks about or Shaytan speaks about misguiding humanity. And one of the things he says is, he says, That I will uh, order them. And they will alter the creation of Allah. Right. Mm -hmm. Right? That they will alter the creation of Allah. So changing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creation is seen as something, obviously, that is outright prohibited. And um, you know something that is in fact subject to a great, great prohibition and uh, moral consternation, right, mm-hmm. and repudiation. 
you have other ahadith as well from the Prophet ﷺ where he curses al-mughayyirati khalq Allah. And this is speaking to the women for certain things that they did, you know, that if they change the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So attempting to change Allah's creation this way is seen as being, you know, this, this particular surgery is seen as falling, falling underneath that umbrella. You also have the curse in general terms of impersonating the opposite sex. And we've spoken about that, that the curse of Allah's Messenger is on those, um, you know, on the effeminate male and the masculine female, who's obviously, as we said, that's, that's someone who's effectively doing so to impersonate as opposed to someone who has some intrinsic qualities they were born with, in which case those people aren't um, blameworthy, although they can't go beyond that, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all, all of these rulings or all of these proofs are general um, that remind us, right, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us a certain way, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fashioned you, right, he shaped you, and he perfected you in that shaping, in that crafting of you and making you who you are. And so this is where the prohibition comes from, and these are some of the core proofs that are mentioned, they're not all of them, but it perhaps gives some insight into the type of things that scholars think about when they actually think about this question of you know, surgical adjustments vis-a-vis a person's sex and you know genitalia, top and bottom surgeries, and all of that. Right. And now the second part of this is there a differentiation made between intersex individuals compared to uh, gender dysphoria? Absolutely there is. You know, when we're talking about well, it depends on the type of intersex individual, obviously. Mm-hmm. When we talk about disorders mm-hmm. of sexual development in general, if any of those disorders are amenable to surgical correction or improvement, then, you know, most scholarly councils that I've come across have permitted them without qualification or concern. Uh, likewise with, you know, the situation of the hermaphrodite, um, you know, someone that has sort of both genitalia or something like that, if there's surgical corrections that can be done to remove the additional appendage, then... Again, most most uh, scholarly councils that I've read have not had any issue at all with that. And so, you know, if there if there's something that is being done in a corrective capacity for a disorder of sexual development or physiological abnormality, no problem. If we're dealing with something that is merely psychological or purely psychological, then that is something that requires a psychological treatment mm-hmm. and address, as opposed to something that should be medicalized. And um, everything that you said right now um, is kind of different from the position of Shiite Iran, right? When it comes to the distinction between the Nafsaniyat and the Badaniyat that you touched upon earlier. Um, So it's kind of legalized in Iran. But it's also very important to mention at this point that you know, there are a lot of, um, you know, Shia scholars and individuals who don't really follow the, the, um, the Iranian um, discourse. And so it's not like, because there's a misconception that, oh, in Shia Islam, this is allowed. No, it needs to be clarified that this is particularly done in Iran. And even within Iran, there have been, there has been a lot of um, kind of backlash or uh, disagreement among the Shiite scholars, correct? Correct. Uh, again, it, it seems as though, uh, you know, as I said, Khomeini, uh, you know, has his own fatwa on it. Um, 
there are others, right, that have commented on this, and I haven't really surveyed them in a great amount of detail, but you have Ayatollah Sistani, that is also considered a very highly regarded scholar, Ayatollah Shirazi. Um, so there's, there is, I'd suggest, you know, if someone is Shia, they should probably consult with a scholar on this. Right. Um, you know, from their own tradition, they can, they can give them some details on, you know, what position is, is endorsed or endorsable. And again, you know, the, the sort of impression that I've seen based on my own readings is that even if someone takes a sort of Sistani fatwa, at that point, the, the, there's no, there's no even option. You know, you are deterministically for the rest of your life going to be the opposite. The, you, you are that sort of bedani internal or nafsani, mm-hmm. whatever is within your batin, like that, that is who you are. And that has to be adjusted and that's the rest of your life. And so it is, it is in some ways quite heavy handed, right? right. Uh, so Allah knows best. That's, that's just the impression that I have. Indeed. And um, another question would be, like, we know that a lot of communities, the third gender, quote unquote, communities exist in Muslim countries like in Pakistan or Bangladesh. There are the Hijras in Indonesia. There are the Wari'as. So, and you spoke about this in particular in um, part two of the article. So what what would be the Islamic understanding or the position with regards to these particular communities? How do we view them? Um, what are their quote-unquote rights within Islam, so to speak? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So I, I think these are complicated questions, um, especially when we start dealing with Pakistan, Bangladesh, and, uh, you know, the sort of hijra phenomenon there. Right. So uh, I think I think on the one hand, people would be quite surprised if they've never been to these countries by the presence of what seems to be a fairly sizable, I mean, large enough that it's noticeable, you know, on the streets in different locales, some neighborhoods it's known to have more hijra individuals. We're talking about biological men, usually adults who impersonate women. They dress like them. They have to wear makeup, wigs, things like that, and are are quite flamboyant and brazenly uh, feminine behaving. Mm-hmm. Um, Indonesia's Wadiyas are a sort of different type of community I'll get to, but I should say that uh, I think that, and this is this is just based on my own readings. I think what you see in the subcontinent, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, is an outgrowth of a really particular socio-economic circumstance of widespread poverty, widespread human dispossession, and the emergence of a particular type of dysfunction that seems to offer people a way to live in a society that they may not otherwise survive in. Um, you know, many children are conscripted and abducted into a life of hijra for the rest of their life. Uh, sometimes they're even uh, castrated at such ages. And so it's quite, it's quite tragic in terms of the stories themselves. The hijra end up subsisting through a couple of means. One is through simple begging on the streets, mm-hmm. and they, they, you know, oftentimes have a mode of begging that can be quite provocative. Sometimes they'll also use profanity and things like that. I, I recall many years ago coming across a, uh, or a few years ago coming across a report. It was a State Department report from a diplomat or someone who had been stationed in Pakistan or India for a couple of years and came back and they actually wrote about this. They they actually commented on just how profane and inappropriate some of the language can be from the hijras. I think they do that so people just kind of throw their money to get them away. And so it it becomes a way for them to at least, you know, make some money, um, you know, doing that. 
Mm-hmm. The other thing that happens or has happened is that there there are many, many superstitions that revolve around these figures. So good omens and bad omens, right? Mm-hmm. When you have a child, you know, that child can have a good life. If a hijrah comes to uh, the home after the birth and recites a few prayers and things like that, and does a few ceremonial activities. So many of them are contracted to do these types of things. There are also things that are considered bad omens, like you know, being buried in the same uh, in the same uh, cemetery mm-hmm. as a hijra. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people. In fact, many of the hijra janazas, when one of them would pass away, they would do the janaza prayer at nighttime, and they would bury them. Or sometimes they wouldn't even do it in other prayer. They would just bury them at nighttime in the cemeteries by a handful of people just so people wouldn't see it happening because of all the superstitious notions surrounding them. Right. Um, there's also the very active part of the hijra life, which is simple prostitution. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Many of the hijras do make a fair amount of money prostituting themselves out um, for men who um, you know, otherwise are married with kids, but you know, perhaps have this side uh, life, right, Um, that's hidden from their family and all that, where they basically, you know, prostitute out hijras and, uh, you know, acquire them for an evening where they can manhandle them and have sex and this and that. And and as I said, they're they're quite traumatic stories. A number of uh, hijras, you know, there's some stories where hijras were interviewed and they talk about how often they end up actually being raped and not even paid um, things like that. I mean, it's it's a very very tragic situation in a lot of ways, and so the hijras are are in many ways qualitatively different than what we might think of in the West with gender identity disorder and gender dysphoria, which is a a a larger cause. It's a you know that that's sort of a celebrated cause. It is a liberation program. It is a program of human liberation and identity formation, and identity acquisition. It is also the expression of this sort of internal self and living your truth and all of that, right? That Those are all things that are baked into the discourse and concept of transgenderism in the West, whereas the hijra phenomenon is not really that. And most hijras don't really conceive of themselves as women, right? Mm-hmm. In the way we would think about it, they're not saying we are, in fact, women, you know, hijra women are women or trans women are women, right? That's, that's very much a Western notion. Um, that's, that's not what hijras are going after. Now, because of just everything that's going on, there, there's a lot of mistreatment towards them as well. Um, and there have been efforts that have been made, especially in recent years by government, some of these countries, to help remedy um, just the general state of things. Some of those remedies have, you know, revolve around things that are really not terribly controversial, but I think have been scandalized partly because they've been covered by left-wing Western media outlets Mm -hmm. that have reframed those efforts as trans-affirming rights movements in the Muslim world. Of course. And once things get covered that way, you get a counter-reaction that tends to oppose those things in those countries. Right. Which is quite unfortunate the way that the West can totally contaminate everything it touches, right? right. Especially its media outlets. It's just, it's just so 
incredibly dull and dumb mm -hmm. that you have just you, you have these activist reporters that cannot seem to read and understand other societies and cultures outside of anything but their own predefined prefabricated and westernized ideals of what is taking place right there's no sensitivity to the idea that these people are just not like you. Their mm -hmm. culture is not yours. And to continue to reflect Western culture on their society, in fact, is, is, is profoundly problematic, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's why, you know, you have the Huffington Post and all these people that will cover these stories in ways that is, is quite, it, it totally distorts what is, in fact, being done. Um, you know, whether, whether those efforts are done by scholarly councils or governments are really sometimes very rudimentary things, right? The idea that, you know, you know, his, his shouldn't be attacked and shouldn't be subject to violence to that basic rights or something like that in a society or, you know, those types of things are being done often in response to the fact of dispossession and oppression of street violence and all of that. That's not a terribly controversial thing. And yet, here it comes out as this big movement and big positive development for trans rights. And, you know, the, the, and the reason that many of these groups are so eager to draw on these communities and what's going on in these countries is that they want to use them to try to portray transphobia as something that is uniquely Western, mostly white, mostly colonial, mostly patriarchal, right? Mm -hmm. They have that whole discourse, right? That that's all it is. Mm -hmm. And anybody that has reservations and moral reservations around transgenderism is really some sort of a bigot. And look, look at these very enlightened people who are non-white and non-colonial and this and that, and that they're, they're able to be at peace with trans figures in their community and even advance like rights that the West doesn't recognize and all of that and and some leftist muslims in the west will leap onto these stories very quickly um especially western muslim academics right. they, they seem to be the, they seem to be uh, the worst culprits in this regard although they're certainly not alone a lot of muslims will try to prove their uh, their their sort of trans affirming bona fides mm -hmm. by drawing on these communities instead of recognizing that in many respects it's actually quite tragic what's going on and in others, you know, we're talking about a, a social issue that is much more deeply seated and is not what we think of when we think of, you know, the, the Bruce Caitlyn Jenner mm. stories of, of transgenderism, which are quite prominent here. And the Indonesia Wadia community is, is a bit different. I don't know as much about them. What I do know, however, is that, you know, the largest scholarly committees in India, in Indonesia, when they have been pressed with questions about the wadiya they've responded firmly and sort of in principle with the sharia as that being you know as you know tahannut right effeminacy being prohibited and that the wadiya community itself is engaged in in sin right that's that's what they've written um and so the fact is that when it comes to religious views and verdicts scholars have generally been in lockstep we don't really have any departures from this for major ulama councils or major scholars and the uh, Lana's path. Jazakallah khairan. Um, while doing the research when we were doing, when we were writing and drafting part two, um, I came across yep. uh, the late Sheikh Faisal Maulawi's position. And I remember I was yep. talking to an individual who struggles with severe gender dysphoria and history of suicidal attempts, um, severe self-harm and a lot of mental health issues. And that individual told me that when 
they read the the fatwa, they felt seen for the first time. And I'm just going to read the, the fatwa, which we added as a footnote to part two article. And it was by the late Sheikh Faisal Maulawi from Lebanon, who issued a fatwa in 2002 permitting, same, um, sorry, permitting sex change surgery for someone with severe gender identity disorder. He preferred this permission as a last resort in the interest of preserving life, foregrounding significant psychological and psychiatric interventions as a precursor to surgical consideration. It should be noted here that this photo is without precedent in the Sunni tradition and that it endorses the spacious notion of gender as a psychological state, um, having priority over biological sex. In this, Maulawi did not regard sex change surgery as a dispensation born of necessity or darura, but instead as a permission akin to that of treating superfluous organs, viewing the dysphoric individual the same as a patient with an extra toe on his foot or finger on his hand. Maulawi's fatwa was originally published on his website, which is no longer active, but the fatwa has been cited by several secondary sources. And the gist of it is that if the person has tried, um, you know, um, psychological interventions, medications, support, and for a long period of time that has not helped and they underwent medical evaluation and they're at the risk of self-harm or suicide, then in that particular very narrow case, which is a minority within a minority, then sex change surgeries may be permitted. Now, what, you know, Given all of this, how do we see it? Um, is this considered to be a minority opinion within um, Islamic discourse, or how do we view that? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So I'll say a couple of things. I think that, you know, first of all, the Sheikh's Fatwa itself seems to have more to do with how do we actually determine whether or not someone is, you know, has gender identity disorder? Right. How do we get to determining that? Well, we have to go through many, many, many means. We have to have independent evaluations and this. And once that thorough process is done, mm-hmm. at that point, can we make a conclusive decision about sex change surgery? It has less to do with the sort of darura-based circumstance of someone literally being on the edge of life or death. It has more to do with trying to uh, arrive at a reliable determination as to whether or not you know, that person is really you know, uh, really suffering from gender identity disorder. That seems to be my read of it, which is, I think, again, a bit of a different type of festival than someone who says, well, if someone's really on the edge and, you know, they're, they're at a place where they're going to take their life and this is the only alternative, then to save life, we can, we can provide them this dispensation uh, on a contingent basis for individuals that literally have no other option, right? That, that seems to be a different type of festival than what he was getting at. Um, Having said that, again, I, I think there are a couple of things here. Um, Sheikh Faisal Maulawi, rahimahullah, you know, and with sort of due respect to him, I'm not sure that his opinion would really rise to the level of being considered a minority of fatwa. And I say this because I, I believe he was a good scholar. I think he passed away in 2011. Mm-hmm. And I, I've spoken to students about this fatwa, and him in particular as well. And I think even they, in fact, they've even said, that he's not someone who would fall in the same category of the others that we've discussed here, a Khomeini, a Tantawi, a Jad al-Haq, who, you know, people can differ with them, those scholars in important ways, but they were independently authoritative enough to furnish fatawa that on issues like this, sort of nawazit, right, contemporary matters, that come to be seen as a sort of introduction or incorporation into the major scholarly discourse of this issue, right? Mm-hmm. I think Sheikh Al-Mawlawi was not 
he figured he in fact he he was a very activist scholar which isn't a bad thing i'm not using that term in a negative way he came out of the ikhwan al-muslimin was very focused on political issues in fact many of his speeches you know i think he went on al-jazeera a couple of times this and that they were all focused on sort of muslim political affairs which he was heavily invested in heavily invested in the muslim european experience subsistence of muslims in there he wrote a couple of books so he didn't have again his sort of life was not focused on the the in-depth scholarly activity of some of the other scholars that we might look at today, like a Mufti Taqi or someone like that, um, mm. right? Where where their sort of life is bound around writing and researching and doing rigorous scholarly work and, and producing books and all of that. Um, and so, you know, the question is, can just a figure like this produce a fatwa that can stand on its own two feet? And the real issue is, well, you know, it, it really requires someone that has a bit more stature to them mm-hmm. or has been produced through a council that a pe- that people can look at and say, well, you know, this sort of scholarly council produced something um, that is really important, rigorous, you know, when it comes to its scholarship and something that really needs to be reviewed and taken into consideration. Um, and so I, I think that really hasn't happened through his fatwa. Uh, I think, uh, you know, in addition to that, I, I just say that you know, the fatwa itself is not included in any of his books. It's not included through any of his formal publications. It is, you know, discoverable on certain websites. Mm-hmm. And so it seems to be the type of fatwa that was really never engaged with, which also makes it a challenge, right? right. So far as we're talking about a phenomenon that the sheikh may or may not have understood to various degrees and that really didn't bring his sort of fatwa, at least in that situation, integrate a conversation with the scholarly community around such that it could be reviewed and spoken about and things like that. And so I, I think it's difficult to really take that fatwa on its own and assert it as a representative of a major minority position. Um, you know, in the Islamic tradition, we have the notion of, okay, a scholar may have a shad view or a strange view um, or an eccentric view, an odd view, a solitary position. But even when we talk about things like that, we tend to talk about those things with major, major authorities. Mm-hmm. You're talking about mm-hmm. a Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Hazam, you know, these sort of like uh, towering figures and polymaths who can do ijtihad. And even then, more often than not, those solitary positions are actually not accepted. Right. Um, sometimes there will be people that endorse them, but that, that is increasingly rare. More often than not, there's sort of an understanding that these people were a bit, um, you know, that they were a bit maverick in their careers mm-hmm. and with their writings and their thought, and that a lot of times their positions come from a place that doesn't necessarily subscribe to traditional forms of usul or legal propriety or whatever the case may be. And so in many cases, even even when they are sort of on an island when it comes to their positions, you know, they're not necessarily the types of positions the scholars will necessarily want to get behind simply because they represent the solitary view. Although in other cases, people might say, hey, look, you know, this is a solitary view, but it's a solitary view from a Ibn Hazm or from a Ibn Taymiyyah or from a, you know, great scholar X. In that case, you know, we can, we can endorse it for our times and places or at least make mention of it as something that needs to be considered more broadly. That tends to not happen with figures that really didn't cut the same sort of presence right. on the scholarly stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, again, I think there are a lot of questions here. In fact, you know, one of his students was 
you know, mentioned to me, look, I'm not even sure that I would necessarily gloss it, only because the fact that the sheikh could not himself or did not himself really have the opportunity to discuss this issue, nor, you know, do we know how he would have necessarily responded to that in an environment and a climate where transgenderism has become a really popular public mm-hmm. international topic, mm-hmm. right? I, I think in that situation, to them, it almost seemed a bit unfair to attribute something to him solely on the basis of what may have been a sort of fatwa given in you know a very casual environment, something that he responded to, without really having done a tremendous amount of due diligence. Again, we don't know all of the factors that surrounded it and how it came about, but we do know that it's not something that is extremely long. It does certainly seem to give some thought to the question, so it's not. I don't want to treat it as if it's just like this perfunctory whatever. But at the same time, it it isn't the um, it, it it wouldn't fall in the same category as you know the collection of scholars of you know you know the uh, Muslim World uh, uh, Assembly of Scholars producing a fatwa on this, or the scholars of Darul Ulum coming together, or the Islamic Councils of Scholars in Indonesia and others producing fatwa on this. Right. And uh, the Lanos Bath. Um, I'm going to revisit this topic, inshallah, in the next episode with Sheikh Mustafa Amar, but I wanted to get your general opinion on this. Uh, no, no, and, and, he's, and he's definitely a good person to talk um, with this around. I think he'd probably have some good insight too, mashallah. Now we get into the second half of the episode, and we're going to be talking about the transgender movement nowadays and the ripple effects that we see. So um, earlier on in the season, we have spoken about the gay liberation movement that rose in tandem with many radical feminist movements and how we are witnessing a lot of the ripple effects of their agendas. Um, My question to you is, how similar and how different is the trans movement in terms of its origin and lobbying in comparison with the gay liberation movement, if you want to talk about the radical feminist movements or even the sexual revolution? Um, And what is the end result in mind, if there is any end result? Because we're seeing the ripple effects and they're huge. Um, So what would you say uh, in terms of that? Yes, so I think that there are different contentions or ideas about, well, when when did the transgender movement kick off, right? <laughs> or when, when do we really look at transgender advocacy as having been a thing? Um, so, some people would say that it dates back to the 80s or perhaps even earlier, and that, you know, what we're seeing in the current space is just the continuation of a long and hard-fought movement that continues to struggle and try to assert and discover and find its own rights and public affirmation, right. similar to the gay, gay rights movement. Uh, I think I think that's a bit of a specious uh, assertion. I don't know that that is really sustainable through any historical reading of what's taken place or any objective reading of what's occurred. Mm-hmm. What the, the transgender movement that we're seeing today really picked up after the uh, Bruce Caitlin sort of Jenner case. So we're talking about something that has been especially acute over the past decade, maybe decade or half, and a half. Um, in terms of similarity to the gay rights movement, it's very similar in terms of its advocacy and program. In fact, it's following that playbook almost to a T. So we're talking about the initial stages of asserting something as immutable, um, constructing the public identity, which has already been put into effect, um, the cultural program, which is an aggressive part of the movement today, the reconfiguration of language 
So changing the way we think about terms or inventing new terms, you know, this is, this is a well-worn script. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're seeing here is just that script repeating itself. Even the, uh, even the notion of biological rootedness, all of that's coming up again with transgenderism simply in a different way, although it's, it's all following the same trajectory as far as I can tell. Right. And also the, the way that they've influenced pop culture, the media, even educational systems and therapy and psychology, it's, it's the same thing happening all over again with regards to that, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh no, no question. In fact, what they've done in the past decade and a half certainly trumps what the sort of gay rights movement was able to do in the first, you know, 30, 40 years of its existence, right? right. It actually took much longer for them to get, you know, celebrities coming out of the closet, right? It was sort mm. of the Ellen, the Elton Dons of the world that, that began that. Or, you know, the, the accommodations in schools. It's just happened in the last couple of years. Transgenderism is already there. Um, right. having, you know, with far, far less time at its availability. It's almost, it's almost just writing the gay rights coattails. That, right. That's kind of what you're doing right for now. Sure. For sure. So the gay liberation movement, in other words, actually paved the way for the trans movement. It kind of made it easier for them to go ahead with their own agendas, so to speak. Uh, absolutely. I mean, in the public eye, they're a single thing. LGBT, right? LGBT exactly. is a single thing. You're either pro-LGBT or you're not. Sure. And there's there's no LGB. Right? There, there's right. no way to just look at it that way. And so, you know, if you're if you're gonna be an ally, if you're gonna affirm something like the LGBT movement and really stand on their side, but you gotta stand on the side of the whole movement. That's right. an intersectionality and allyship protocol, everything else that comes into effect here. Right. It's an all or none thing, absolutely. Yep. Um, what sources would you recommend for individuals who want to understand the trans movement better? Um, we know that there aren't a lot of sources available to kind of, they're either already pro-LGBT, but not in a sense of, you know, we want like an objective understanding of the matter from, well, let's say, I wouldn't say from an Islamic lens, because I doubt there's anything out there, but rather to understand this movement better. From your research, what would you recommend? Yeah, well, you know, I think what's what's tough about that question is that the discourse on transgenderism has moved so far along that even websites and figures and scholars that are sort of transcritical are not mm. transcritical in all respects, in the sense that they do not foreclose and or outright reject possibility of sex change surgery. They don't seem to approach this issue from a deeply moral perspective. They, they, don't, they don't really have any substantial consternation or reservations around people going through, you know, sex change surgeries if they have to, right? That, and that's what they look at as well. Mm-hmm. Their, their, their objection, their concern is, well, when do they have to, right? Mm-hmm. And so they do have a lot of reservations over what's going on in schools and the targeting of children and the inducing of gender confusion and the reflexive idea that surgical adjustments or modifications are uncritically positive and the only way in which people can be affirmed or that affirmative therapy is the only right approach. So they're critical of things, many things within the transgender movement, but they're not, you know, outright opposed to the whole idea of transgenderism in many cases. They just say, look, we think that, you know, if it is more organically being accommodated, it would be a very, very rare 
very small, very minority phenomenon, as opposed to something that really is getting shoved down the throats of everybody and is rising to very high levels. And so there are some people who have written on this, but again, they write on it from the perspective of it, its advocacy arm, hmm. more so than you know an outright opposition to transgenderism as an entire category of thought, right? Um, hmm. So those people who have written on it from sort of that vantage point, there are many. Um, you do have some sexologists and psychotherapists in this space, like Ray Blanchard and Ken Zucker and Michael Bailey, who are interesting figures to read. Uh, Lisa Littman as well. Um, you also have recent books uh, that have been written. You have Ryan Anderson from the Heritage Foundation, who's written um, "When Harry Became Sally," mm-hmm. uh, which is which is an interesting read. Um, you also have Abigail Schreier's book. Um, you know, what's, uh, what's the name of her book? You know, it's, I think it was delisted from Amazon. Right. Um, and that actually might be true for, uh, what's his name's book as well. Uh, Ryan Anderson, irreversible damage, irreversible damage. So yeah, Schreier's book. Yeah. You have his book. So you have a, you have a couple of books that have been written in that vein. There are a couple of websites as well that are pretty decent. I think there's one website, what's called fourth wave now. Mm hmm. Is the uh, is the website, um, you know, it's it's managed by someone who goes under a pseudonym. I'm not, I can't remember the pseudonym that they write under, but it it actually publishes a fair number of scholarly discussions on it, as well as others. Again, it's it's not fundamentally and outrightly a, totally opposed to transgenderism, but is really really critical of the activist arm, the way in which it's targeting children, the way in which it's targeting many girls, and, and trying to address their different insecurities by pushing them into a life of uh, social and surgical and medical gender transitioning. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of opposition to that. And that's, the, that's just, those are some of the resources if people are interested, they can check out. Um, I think in general, the part two, we put together actually that article is in fact a very good resource. Mm-hmm. If people want to get a set of literature on this topic and learn more about it, it's a very detailed article, obviously. We brought mm-hmm. a lot of material together yes. in terms of sociology, psychology. I mean, it is not just, hey, here's halal haram. And as Muslim, it's not a Jeremiah right, against it. Yeah. I think it's pretty careful in the way it addresses everything. And I think for people who are looking to understand this, I think it does a fair job. And I think it does more than a fair job. In, in providing a very lengthy and detailed treatment of the topic for Muslims who really want to understand it. So. I would say so too. Yeah, absolutely. Alhamdulillah. Jazakallah khairan for your answer. Yeah. Um, now, speaking of pop culture, we see nowadays the normalization of drag queens, for example, right? It's becoming more and more mainstream. You go on YouTube, you find them, you watch a movie, they're there. Yep. Uh, the story of Bruce and Caitlyn Jenner, which, um, as you've mentioned here and in the article, um, it was sort of the spark that kind of allowed a lot of things to happen and to normalize the trans movement. Most recently, the famous actress from Canada, Ellen Page, became, I mean, she, she was known to be a lesbian, quote unquote, and then recently she underwent transitioning into a male, uh, Elliot Page, and other examples of that. We also see, other than pop culture, the effects on the school curricula, where kindergartners and even primary school students are 
taught that gender is fluid, there are multiple genders, you know, the gingerbread man, for example, and even drag queens are coming to read stories to little kids. Um, the trans movement is also influencing laws like the bathroom bills, uh, sports even, who gets to decide who's male and female in the Olympics, etc. So we see all of that. Now, if I were to ask you in your experience, um, how are these and other manifestations of the trans movement influencing society, influencing society and impacting Muslim communities in particular? When we talk about family units, uh, schools, academia, Muslim scholarship even, and our mosques and the places of worship, um, how would you respond to that? Well, I would say when it comes to families, schools, and academia, Muslims are no different than anyone else in terms of the types of impacts and challenges that we're dealing with. Um, what we're seeing with this overwhelming and public trans movement is a radical rise in the rate of gender dysphoria. Right. I mean, something that used to happen at a very low rate of occurrence, right? We're talking about very low percentages and was almost exclusively a phenomenon that occurred for adult men. So 0.00-something percent or 0.0-something percent of adult men would experience this is now being experienced by, you know, almost 2%, right? Right. Uh, and especially teenage girls who are now the majority of those that are coming out as gender dysphoric. That is a tremendous shift, sure. a tremendous shift, especially when you add on to that the rise in childhood gender dysphoria. So we're talking about we're talking about children who don't aren't even sexually developed to have a sort of more a deeper concept of being a gender, right? And yet, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're not even developed enough to have that idea, and they're they're being indoctrinated by this gender confusion at a young age and urged to, to take on this sort of social transition by parents who have been led to believe that they're helping their children when they're doing this, by schools, counselors, and teachers who want to provide an affirming space. And so all this is being done in the name of empathy and care and, uh, you know, providing support. But what it's really doing is, uh, is advancing various forms of dysfunction and exacerbating transgenderism overall and proliferating its uh, its presence. Right. So so for, to families themselves, we're getting many, many more cases where, um, you know, just parents or families are, are finding themselves in situations with gender dysphoric children or gender dysphoric family members. And within schools themselves, you have policies now that explicitly, um, explicitly state and urge teachers, counselors, and others to work with children in schools mm -hmm. who have gender dysphoria and to help them if they need to transition because everyone has to stand behind affirmative care and affirmative therapy. Right. Um, and that they not only don't have to tell the parents of anything that's going on, most, most guidance and policies that's being provided explicitly state not to. They are, they are encouraged not to do so. Yeah. They are told in no uncertain terms that if you tell parents that you're that if you tell parents that their children are, you know, transitioning in school or going by a different name and all of that within these safe space confines of our institutions, well, they could end up homeless, they could end up on the street, they could, you know, be subject and victim of violence. And so why would you want to be responsible for that? And you are under no 
legal or moral or other obligation to tell parents, and many schools will hold responsible teachers, some schools, I should say, will hold teachers responsible who do tell parents. And so that's a really, really scary and radical situation wherein wherein you can have teachers that basically work with students and counselors and therapists that work with young children to float ideas of gender transitioning by them, work with them to transition. So they sort of plant the seed, Mm -hmm. right? They work with them through it. They give them a new name. They construct all of this. They produce a setting in school. All this can take place. And everybody can be in on it except for the parents themselves. And so we're not only talking about the challenge of, you know, the restroom issue, which is a challenge, or athletics, or, you know, you know, just, you know, Jimmy coming to school one day as Sarah and dressing like a girl and everyone in school suddenly having support and affirm and all of that, 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 you know, the parents sort of in on it. But we're also talking about something that is so draconian Mm-hmm. And and also relies on and traffics in a great deal of concealment mm-hmm. and deception when it comes to its own relationship to parents and the rights of parents, and so it's quite extreme there uh, in in those in those respects. So you know that that doesn't even begin to talk about the incorporation of trans and LGBT teaching into curriculums. Um, so, you know, when I was growing up in public school, we were taught about homosexuality, just about everybody in my generation was. Right. And it was a pro-homosexual teaching. It wasn't something that was taught in a way that was stigmatized. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it was taught as part of a single module, right? So we learned about it in high school. It was taught as part of family life education. Parents were allowed to opt their children out of that class if they wanted to. A number of parents did. Mm-hmm. Again, it was one module. It wasn't the whole year. So you wouldn't be like missing the whole year of school. You'd be missing a few classes and given alternatives. And usually that class was done during PE. So if you weren't in there, you'd be in PE playing sports and all that, you know? And so it wasn't something where, you know, you were academically disadvantaged Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. stigmatized or alienated on account of simply being held out of, you know, a couple of classes or not being um, put in a couple of classes. Today, what's happened is the sort of LGBT curriculum integration is now something that nests itself and integrates itself into history, into science, into English. So what literature are you reading in school? What literature are you being assigned? Mm -hmm. How How is biology being taught when it comes to men and women? Yes, many schools are now teaching gender identity instead of sex. When it comes to history... Now you're talking about trans history and queer history that is now part of the civil rights struggle or as part of greater world movements. So all of these things now, you know, whereas you used to be able to, as a religious family that has moral objection to homosexuality and transgenderism, used to be able to say, look, I just want to opt my kids out of that module. But, you know, and, you know, that happens in high school. And for the most part, I can, I can sort of work with my child to reinforce our values um, you know, in the household and make sure that we're doing everything right here mm-hmm. and you know, that can help them through it. And the only other challenge they have outside of what school is doing is just, you know, friends that they're making and other kids at school and all of that. Well, schools can't control that. We sort of understand that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, it's, it seemed to be something that was at least somewhat more manageable to now something that, well, this is going to be a sustained part of their educational existence, starting at a young age, 
you're going to have a full administration and set of teachers who are very, very pro, stridently LGBT. And, you know, it's just going to keep recurring and recurring and recurring throughout their academic tenure, you know, until they graduate from high school. And it starts at, as we said, really young ages. And so, you know, the schools themselves have become a major, major challenge. And challenge is just putting it mildly. I mean, I, I think certainly in many Western countries, we're coming close to a situation where I think for religious families that have, you know, deep, deep moral reservations and disagreements on these types of issues, you're going to have to th- start thinking very hard about, you know, homeschool and Islamic schooling or religious schooling of various sorts just to keep your kid away from it. Because, you know, in, in a public school, you you really are in a situation where you're, you're, you're taking a very, very high risk. You're taking a huge risk on an issue like this. And so, you know, what, what alternatives do we have now? Especially given the fact that these things don't seem to be letting up and they only appear to be getting worse. And we're just finding ourselves in the middle of a social and cultural context where this is a culture war issue and everyone hates each other and they're going to fight about this forever. And if you try to come out and say, look, I don't, I don't want to be in the middle of this like vicious fight. Mm-hmm. All I want to do is make sure that my kids can be raised with our morals and values, and I don't want school to subvert that or impose the values, the values of the state on my children. Right. I should have the right to teach my kids about sex and gender and everything else. I don't want schools to try to take on that type of responsibility. I just don't, right? right. And I want, I want my kid to be able to, uh, you know, use a bathroom in accordance with his or her own sex, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem like it's a lot to ask. And there doesn't seem to be a way to actually have that type of discussion without getting into really, really emotionally intense discussions where people are starting to throw out or have been throwing out words like bigot and, you know, and hate and transphobe and everything else, mm-hmm. right? And suddenly now you're you're on the ropes looking like a sort of modern-day Nazi because, <laughs> because of something mm-hmm. like that, right? And so, so I, th- I think these schools issues very, very critical right now in terms of where we are. Um, academia, again, I guess it just depends on what one studies. I think in religious studies, you're definitely going to come across this. The humanities, liberal arts, etc. I think the natural sciences have still sort of, not all of them, but a lot of them have still kind of kept this at bay to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. I think for other fields, you're probably going to come across this in corporate life. So even if you're an accountant or you do IT or something like that, you're probably going to come across this in whatever uh, uh, corporation you end up working for. So, again, I think people should be prepared for that. But in, in some respects, you're kind of more an ad, of an adult by then. So hopefully you can compartmentalize better. Uh, for children, obviously, in the school stuff, that that's a, I see that as quite damaging. Um, sure. And really almost at a different level of challenge. Right. Now, sort of your last question about Muslim scholar scholarship, you know, obviously when something is this sort of hot an issue, when it's a lightning rod for controversy, what happens is, Many Muslim scholars don't want to write about it and don't want to speak about it. Mm-hmm. And there are so many concerns about, well, if I speak about it, what happens if my clip or a recording comes out, takes what I've said about it, and suddenly gets circulated and makes me look like a bigot or discriminatory or something like that? In European countries, there have been scholars that have lost their job, and some have been deported because of rhetoric and statements that they've said against homosexuality or transgenderism. Right. That's happened happened in France, 
that's happened in Belgium, that's happened in countries throughout Europe. So it's not a trivial concern. In the U.S. and Canada and some of these countries, I think in the U.K. as well, the larger concern is less of a legal one and more of a social concern, right? What's the social fallout going to be? What social cost am I going to pay? And for a lot of Muslim scholars and others, it just doesn't, you know, I think they make a calculation which says, you know, the juice just isn't worth the squeeze. It's not worth coming out on an issue like this mm. if it means that I and my community are going to be pilloried and we're going to be in the crosshairs of these aggressive leftist into, uh, activists and then even like conservative uh, Republican ones who de facto hate Muslims are going to jump on it too. And suddenly, you know, there's like a bipartisan movement of hostility against me. And so there's a lot of fear that gets baked into this. And so what happens within mosques and places of worship is that these things just don't get spoken about. And I think that that, that ends up being very, very challenging. The last thing I'll mention briefly, as brief as I can, on sort of what we're seeing and how it's impacting mm -hmm. mosques and places of worship mm -hmm. is that in recent months especially, and I can say this firsthand as I've been in contact with a number of imams on this, um, and for people who aren't familiar with this term, they should go ahead and read the paper. But you've had more what appear to be men who are autogynophiles, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Who are smitten with the idea of living as Muslim women. Right. So they're interested in Islam from the perspective of someone who wants to wear a niqab mm -hmm. and wants to be this very domestic and modest and shy woman and play that role in society. And they're more interested in that than they are things like the Akhirah or the pillars of Islam or the actual creed of what Islam says, right? right. So the beliefs of Islam itself are actually less important. They're foreground. They'll say, I want to become Muslim and wear niqab and hijab. Can I start... If I convert, can I start coming to the masjid and sitting in the sister section? Will your masjid allow me? Like they're starting from the position of wanting to be a Muslim woman, quote unquote, and less from the position of I want to actually be a Muslim. Right. And just for the listeners um, to, to just yep. know that autogynephilia, which has been mentioned in the part two, part two article, is when a biological male is interested in living the living experience of a female not necessarily transitioning but rather living as a female in terms of wardrobe and behavior and it's not necessarily limited to uh, an islamic context or a religious context but rather having that experience and that gives them some sort of a pleasure it's more of a desire at the end of the day so just an fyi for anyone who just wants to yeah it's, it's sort of an outgrown fetish exactly. of sort of embodying the female mm -hmm. right um and taking on female embodiment um, so there, there is that, and that those situations can be quite strange because you know I think the the impulse of most scholars is to say well you know you never want to prevent somebody from converting to Islam, even if they have some sins in their lives that they're doing. You know if someone comes and says really I, I want to be a Muslim and they still drink alcohol for instance, right. we'd say okay become Muslim and you know later on we'll work on your alcohol issue or we'll work on this issue. You don't have to drop everything you were doing day one, right? Sometimes it takes time. Islam is a process, it's not an event, right? Mm -hmm. um, but this, this seems to be different insofar as it, it, you know, many of these people seem to be less interested in Islam itself. 
They seem to be less interested in the Quran, less interested in the Sunnah, less interested in the Prophet and far more interested in the Abaya, more interested in the Hijab, mm-hmm. more interested in the Niqab, more interested in being with the Muslim women, mm-hmm. right? Like that mm-hmm. seems to be where the desire is. And, and in some ways, it's understandable because of the way in which Muslim dress can allow these people to integrate themselves as women in a way that's more convincing Mm -hmm. and does not elicit as many questions. Because when you're wearing niqab, you know, no one really knows what you look like, right? Right. And so, you know, if you you are, you know, not somebody that can afford really expensive plastic surgeries and doesn't want to go out and, you know, you know, many of these people, you go through some surgical alteration and you start wearing makeup, you do all that, and you still kind of look like a in-between, right? You don't look convincingly female. Um, you still seem to have many masculine characteristics and features. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's a difficult because even, even after hormones, right, you may still have facial hair coming in. and this. I mean, it's really tough to just rid yourself of your biology in this way. Like you're, you're just fighting, just feel like you're constantly fighting this uphill battle and it becomes a major source of anxiety and despair. And so far as people, you know, you're, you're sort of trying to tell people that you're a female, but you don't really look it and you don't feel it individually. And you recognize that other people aren't convinced and don't look at you that way. And so that can be quite isolating and alienating and it it can lead to, to depression and uh, trauma, trauma and all of that can build up right Right. and so wearing the niqab can in many ways resolve those problems right Mm -hmm. because all of that all of that leaves the equation all that's gone right we can we can take all that and put it out the window and all we're doing is walking in right i don't have to like i don't have to put in all of this effort just to be accepted as a woman i can just dress you know loosely throw on an abaya right Right. (laughs) sort of just a loose robe you know, cover my face with a niqab and just walk right into the sister section and be one of the sisters, mm-hmm. right? That prospect itself is a very attractive one, many of them. Mm-hmm. And so that is something that we're seeing more and more and, and trying to figure out how to confront and really deal with situations where those type of people are coming to the community and saying, I want to be part of your community. I want to come to your masjid, Right. And, and I think that, that that's become really a really big challenge now. Indeed, yeah. Jazakallah khairan for elaborating on all yeah. of this. The, the the prospects are really scary. What is happening nowadays is just crazy. SubhanAllah. May Allah help us, all of us. Amin. Amin. Um, I wanted to ask you something. I will uh, talk to Sheikh Mustafa about this, inshallah, in detail. But given um, your experiences, I wanted to ask you, how do you personally deal with the push for full affirmation, so to speak, in your community, what you're seeing in the States, for example, whether in, because we know that you have kids, for example, in their schools or in your workplace, etc. Because that we know that nowadays anything short of full affirmation is considered to be bigotry or transphobia or whatever else. And within your community, the Muslim community, what are we doing, if anything, to actually be dealing with, with you know, all of that? So I, I can only speak for myself, obviously. Um, you know, my family, we, we homeschool our children. And so all, mm-hmm. all of my children are homeschooled. I, if we weren't homeschooling, we'd probably put them in an Islamic school. We definitely would. That would be the alternative. But you know, we right. homeschool our children. My kids are young, and so that's that's how we 
Emotional. When it comes to kids, in terms of workplaces, there's only so much you can do, right? At a minimum, mm-hmm. you have to, you know, no, you don't want to risk your job on it. And for the most part, you know, I work in IT, and so in a lot of ways, it's not an ever-present issue. Most of your day-to-day is just working with technology and talking to people mm-hmm. about technology and not really talking to them about LGBT issues. And so in <laughs> some ways, you know, your, your day-to-day sort of career can, you know, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, just just you know, saturated in this pool. I think that's different for people who may have jobs that where, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion is just a bigger part of the role mm-hmm. and is an inescapable part of their day-to-day. I think that's different, obviously, for them. Um, but, you know, you just kind of maintain your own resolve, your own commitments, your own principles. And, you know, there's, that's that's kind of it, right? I mean, in the day-to-day, you try to be a good employee, a good coworker, try to execute on the things that are asked of you, and uh, and be a person who's you know productive, hardworking, respected, and treats others with respect and care, and that that's all you kind of can be in the workplace. Um, in terms of sort of community more broadly, in terms of the Muslim community, I think many communities in the West, especially in the U.S., are still like very much behind the eight ball on issues like this. Mm-hmm. Most of the communities that I've seen have not even begun having discussions on these types of issues. Many of them are scared. Right. They're scared about how they're going to be viewed. They're scared about how they're going to be seen. They're confused. Many of them really don't, especially a lot of our uh, parents who, um, you know, uh, migrated here from other countries. I, I think many of them don't fully understand or get what's going on. Right. And so there's that as well. Um, and so it's going to take time. You know, there, there's a hope certainly that, you know, many of them would begin, uh, you know, and, and sort of develop the metal needed to maybe take a risk on issues like this and, and, and absorb the costs mm-hmm. and recognize that our principles and our faith and the transmission of Islam generationally is more important than some bad PR. So we, we need Muslim communities, organizations, and figures that are willing to speak out on issues like this. We do have a few. We just, we just don't have very many. Right. So um, mm-hmm. we need a lot, lot more than what's going on right now for, within our communities. That's a fact. And it's complicated. It's complicated by the fact that most Muslims, especially activists, younger Muslims, but even Muslim communities in general, politically have gone fully to the left, are, are very much in bed with the Democratic Party and all of that. So, mm-hmm. you know, how much is an issue like this going to jeopardize all of that? Um, it probably will. And so many people are not desirous to compromise or jeopardize their allyships and the type of public and political support that they've grown accustomed to enjoying. And so, again, there, there are a lot of issues that have to be peeled back and dealt with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some of those are, are uncomfortable discussions and difficult ones for us to have, but we have to have them, right? We have to have mm-hmm. them honestly and forthrightly. Not, uh, we don't have to be contemptuous or hostile to one another. We can be you know, as brothers and sisters in our community come to the table as people with shared beliefs and values and to really think through how we can address this because we, we owe it to our children, we owe it to ourselves to really try to get this right. Um, you know, um, in terms of will we get to a point where our religious freedoms are outright denied if we don't agree with them? Um, probably, I mean, potentially, it really depends, right? I mean, look, where it, the, the question is, you know, what, what, what does that mean, Right. I mean, there's there's always probably going to be the sort of Amish option, right? Mm-hmm. Just to say, fine, you can be this isolated, 
unintegrated community that lives in the middle of nowhere and doesn't care to be part of public society or the public square, um, in which case you can hold on to whatever values you want. But, you know, don't try to be in the midst of our social, our corporate, our vocational and political and cultural spaces and advance ideas and values that are so backwards and out of date, right? Mm. And so whether it is uh, explicitly or de facto prohibited for people or is just something that is so socially stigmatized that people would never utter those types of views and positions, I think the net effect could potentially be the same and pretty much will be, which is that people won't talk about LGBT except in the most affirming ways. And that's, that's really the concern. And, you know, the more silent you are, the more accustomed you get to not speaking on things, the more you, you basically tell your community that you're scared of even letting people know that you're having conversations on this or that you have disagreements about these types of issues, the further along that process is going to go. And you're going to very quickly find yourself at a point where you can't, right? There, there was a time where you could have, you didn't do so. And now you can't, and you have to live with those consequences because you were so scared and imperiled by public scrutiny that you know you just didn't you didn't do what was necessary to actually defend your own rights as an individual absolutely yeah. and as a community Allah knows best indeed Jazakallah and the uh, last question that I want to ask you today pertains to the last part of part two article the conclusion and I'm just going to read this part um, the, where in the conclusion, it says, the reality is that for the vast majority of people in the Muslim community, including imams, therapists, physicians, and parents, the topic of transgenderism represents uncharted waters. The majority of counselors and therapists in the Muslim community attend to domestic disputes such as rocky or failing marriages, child-parent tensions, eating disorders, and related anxieties, and domestic violence. Some may occasionally find themselves dealing with Muslims who struggle with same-sex attractions, though even this bears little correspondence to individuals who have come to hate their own bodies, their genitalia, their identity, and how God made them, a boy or a man whose few moments of ease arise when he wears makeup or dons female undergarments or begins to wear hijab outside the house, a girl or a woman who agonizingly chest binds, quote-unquote, to suppress the protrusion of her breasts in order to appear more masculine. How can we minister to such people in a way that does not aggravate their alienation, trauma, and personal despair without violating our core commitments as a moral community or entrenching their dysphoria further? Herein lies the million-dollar question. So my question to you, which is the million-dollar question, what do you think is necessary to, to help our communities cater to individuals struggling with gender dysphoria in these very turbulent times? How can we help people struggling with these matters find their peace and their home, quote-unquote, so to speak? What would be your recommendations? Yeah. As I said, I, I don't know that there is a... I don't know what... I don't know that there's an answer in the sense that, you know, here's just what we need to do. Right. There are probably approaches we can take. There's no perfect solution to these problems because of how complicated they've all become. For sure. um, you know, intellectually, these aren't difficult problems, right? In some ways, we can, you know, just even at the surface level, we can talk to people on sort of a rational basis and say, well, hold on. Mm -hmm. If you're telling mm -hmm. me gender is fluid and it's constructed, how can you also tell me that it's so immutable that this has been your sort of internal gender from birth? that it can never be changed, 
right? Those two things are inherently contradictory. I can ask a question like that and sort of have a rational discussion with people, right? I can ask somebody, well, you know, if you are, um, you know, if you're non-binary and you're a female, why are you getting a double mastectomy done, right? We know that men don't have breasts, right? How do we know that non-binary people don't have breasts? Mm -hmm. Who defines what a non-binary person? I mean, we can ask questions about this whole activist thing, what's going on with in the name of transgenderism, to problematize it intellectually. Mm-hmm. The problem is not, however, the intellectual part of the problem, as we've sort of mentioned here. It is the sociological issue of individuals, the social issue of individuals, who are really dealing with really acute forms of psychological despair. Um, and and how to tend to them, how to really, you know, give them, you know, a form of engagement, treat them as individuals, to bring them to a, pra- a place of wholeness, mm-hmm. right? It's possible that some of the lessons we've learned through trying to help Muslims with same-sex attractions mm-hmm. can be useful here. Right. And I think they can. Agreed. Because there is a lot here that potentially is intersected by trauma. For sure. There's a lot here that's potentially intersected by um, fractured relationships or potentially or possibly very traumatizing events that occurred in a person's childhood. We really don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's certainly a potential that can be explored. There's also the question of how to f- help people find wholeness. There's also the part of this which relates to identity, right? right? Mm -hmm. And all of those things are very deeply intertwined and and share considerable overlap with how we've had to and continue to have to really work with people who have same-sex attractions. Now, this is going to be a more minority phenomenon, although for a time period, you know, and potentially going forward, it could be, you know, the numbers could be very similar in terms of the number of people who are reporting same-sex attractions and people reporting gender dysphoria. Right. Not all of them are going to be the same, right? Yeah. However, you know, I, I think that we can try to bring all of those lessons and try to employ the best of them. And there's going to be, you know, learning along the way. Right? Mm-hmm. There's going to be trial and error. I think that as a community, we do our best, right? We do our best. We tie our camel and we put our trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's all we can do. Indeed. And I, I don't think we can allow fear of, of making the wrong decisions stop us from trying. I think that, you know, usually when people are so overwhelmed with uh, concern, they usually give up, right? Mm-hmm. And then what you have is a sort of fatalist defeatism that ends up occurring because, well, it's just going to happen anyways. And you know, that, no, you know, we, we have to at least put our best foot forward. We have to put our best foot forward. And many of these people who actually are reporting gender dysphoria in the Muslim community are coming to Muslims, are coming to imams, are coming to masjids, yes. and they're looking for help. Yes. They're looking for help, yep. right? Mm-hmm. And if they're looking for that type of assistance, we have to at least have a, a decent way to try to help them, whether it's perfect or not. I don't know what that path is going to be. I would hope that there would be people who are, you know, confident enough to be transcritical in the way that affirmative therapy is taught today and say, look, that's not the framework, that's not the paradigm we're going to operate within. Instead, we're going to evaluate and read the relevant research and studies on these issues. We're going to bring our morals and values to the table 
and try to adopt something that could potentially become a model for Muslims elsewhere. And we're going to revisit it. And we're going to have a council and we're going to have groups of people that are in constant conversation. And along the way, we're going to tweak this. We're going to improve on that. We're going to be, you know, we're going to be in dialogue. Right. And we're going to try to form support groups and we're going to try to do events and we're going to try to do things to help people along the way so that those people can find wholeness with who they are. Right. And to find comfort in their own bodies. Right. To, to get them to realize and recognize that they are perfect as Allah made them. Indeed. That there's nothing wrong with their physical shape. And that, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created them in a way that they can be content with. Mm-hmm. They can come to love their own body and recognize that there's something profound and beautiful about the human experience. And the and, and to recognize that, you know, what they're what they're dealing with when it comes to sort of the internal person is not some you know, they're there's so much that's within us, right? The heart, the state, the locus of our spiritual existence, right? Yes. That, uh, um, you know, that's where we find personal contentment, yep. right? That's where we find uh, a sense of, you know, uh, uh, tranquility, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It is in the remembrance of Allah that the hearts find tranquility, Indeed. right? The Prophet ﷺ saying that in every body is a morsel of flesh, if it is sound, right? That uh, the entire body is pure. With a fasadat, and if it is corrupted, the entire body is corrupted. Indeed, it's the heart. It is the heart. And so, you know, trying trying to focus on, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't look at your outer forms, right? Mm-hmm. Nor does he look at your body. But he looks to what? But he looks at your hearts and your deeds. Indeed. And as Muslims, we actually have something, I think, to offer these people within our faith to really get them to reorient the way that they look at who they are internally, their spiritual state, their piety, their uprightness and sense of virtue, right? The morals and ethics that they're living with. This is how we become, you know, people of, of merit and value. These are the types of things that our identity should be grounded in, Indeed. not in, you know, the, the far more uh, subjective forms of, or not subjective, I should say, far more contentious forms of, well, you know, this is, this is my identity and I want everyone to affirm it and things like that, right? right. So Allah knows best. Again, I think, I think so a lot of this still has, there's a lot of work that has to be done. As I said, I don't know that I have all the answers. And I, and I do think that this is one of those areas where a lot of the work that's already been done for those with same-sex attractions can can provide us a lot of help and, and lessons learned and potentially provide us a starting point, a baseline that, that we can work from. Agreed. The London's Agreed, indeed. And if I were to, to add to what you said, uh, mashallah, beautifully said, jazakallah khair, um, but yeah. the work has to be holistic and multidisciplinary, particularly when it comes to individuals with gender dysphoria. And by holistic, I mean uh, looking at, you know, the mind, the body, the soul, uh, and the the heart as well as the social connections because Allah created all these five faculties which we need to take care of and at the same time multidisciplinary in the case of gender dysphoria we need to look at we as a Muslim community need to step up and have imams and scholars talk about this to address the spiritual and the religious aspects we have to have muslim therapists who are trained in trauma uh, therapy and other forms of therapy to help those individuals we have to have physicians because this topic is intertwined a lot with intersex and the 
disorders of sexual development. So we have to have physicians who are well trained in these areas to also combat the 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 agenda that's targeting the medical community as well, as well as you know parents to raise awareness about these particular topics and to speak about this within the Muslim community. Because if we don't do that from a multidisciplinary perspective, then the work is not. For me individually, like as a person who has been dealing with same-sex attractions and doing the research and speaking about this, we have to do this. Otherwise, it's always going to be deficient. Wallahu a'lam. But this has to be. No, and you know, and you know this better than me. I mean, you know, unfortunately, you know, if if someone, if a brother were to come to me and say, you know, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction trends, is there a therapist that you would recommend I go to in the Muslim community? Um, I, I probably wouldn't know where to direct. Um, yep. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know where to direct them. I, I, I might even discourage it outright. I might say, look, just abandon the whole Muslim therapist thing. <laughs> like, yeah. like let's, just, let's just try to find the right person who can help you. But, you know, maybe that's probably not where you want to go. Right. It, it might, in fact, make the situation much worse. And I've spoken with Muslims who have same-sex attractions to talk about horror, just absolute horror stories in dealing with Muslim therapists who, you know, either just told them whatever any non-Muslim would have told them, you know, in terms of, oh, this is just who you are, embrace your identity, yes, that, yes, get over it, exactly. that type of thing. <laughs> or, or alternatively, you know, seem to have very little clue about what's going on, no background in it. Again, this is what I sort of mentioned, is that most of these people yes. tend to deal with situations of, you know, domestic violence or divorces, and they're, they're you know, people who are just depressed and I think they bring a little bit of that playbook to the table and yes. they're, and it's weird because, you know, it's, it's so problematic because on the one hand, there's all this pressure to say, well, if you're dealing with an issue like gender dysphoria and you need assistance, you should go to a therapist. And then yet on the other hand, it's like, which therapist, where can we actually find a therapist well, that can the actually thing. help these people out in yep. doing anything other than affirmative therapy? Yep. Who's going to do that? Where, where are they? And where, where are you going to find that with you know homosexuality? Where are you going to find anybody who's really well versed in reparative therapy and assisting people and working with them in, in sort of a different way? We don't have many Muslims yeah. in that boat. Yeah. We don't at all. And and you know I, I don't know that I, I would ever counsel somebody to go. They're just given um, all the stories that I've heard. So for sure. But just to give people a little bit of hope, um, that yeah. just to kind of end it on a high note, uh, yeah. alhamdulillah, there's been, there's been, I mean, despite the deficiencies that we have as Muslim communities around the world, there has been, um, I mean, there's been a lot of progress being done uh, recently. The momentum has been picking up, alhamdulillah, I mean, I've seen this um, ever since the 2020 conference that you and I were part of the Sheikh Yasser Qadi, the Epic Conference. Yep. Uh, a lot of parents, uh, Muslim therapists, especially in the West, and educators and scholars have been reaching out they want to learn they want to get educated on these matters to be able to help their communities um, and alhamdulillah slowly but surely we're going to get to that point inshallah we don't know but we're hoping that bifadlillah inshallah we get to a point where the muslims who are in our community who are dealing with same-sex attractions or gender dysphoria can have the right people to turn to and the proper resources it's going to take time but inshallah we're hopeful so let's just keep praying no no that you're right that's, that's actually very good right <laughs> 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 and that's actually excellent that people have reached out i'm, I'm actually really happy to hear that mashallah alhamdulillah um it's all from allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we're very grateful
Brother Mubin, Jazakallah Khairan, you've been a wonderful guest over five episodes in this season. I've learned so much from you, Jazakallah Khairan, for all of your efforts and all of your time. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that the audience has benefited so much from all of your commentary and the resources that, that you've suggested. Uh, we look forward to looking more into that. Any last words that you would like to share with us? No, nothing. I, I would, you know, again, you know that the place that I come at a lot of this from is really as somebody who's trying to help Muslims in difficult times, right? At the end of the day, what we want for everybody is is a good afterlife. Right. We want us all to be gathered with the Prophet ﷺ in the hereafter. We want to drink from his hands on the day of judgment, and to be resurrected as believers, right? To be to have a good standing in front of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. And that that's you know when we start talking about the stakes of issues like this, that's the biggest stakes. There's there's nothing bigger than that. Yeah. And, you know, the extent to which we're able to help anybody come closer to that path is a huge, huge blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so if there's any good in anything that we do, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept from it. That it's all from Him. Mm. And that if there is any deficiencies or anything that I said that's wrong, it is, it's from me and me alone and my own weaknesses. And so, you know, I always ask people to, for forgiveness for those, for those mistakes. And I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for His own forgiveness as well. Mm. Um, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that. You know, these are these are tough times for all of us. No one has it easy. Nobody. Whether the issue is an LGBT issue or something else going on, we're just we're just living in tough times and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests people differently. Mm-hmm. And we remind ourselves that this world is a test. This world is a test. And uh, you know, our 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 responsibility as individuals is try to weather the storms of the moment mm-hmm. while staying while keeping our qibla facing him. And uh, indeed, yeah, and in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows Barakallah beautiful, beautiful messages. Jazakallah khairan, wonderful reminders. Uh, Brother Mubin, Barakallah for all of your time and efforts. It's been a pleasure and an honor to have you on the podcast. Oh, no, the honor has been all mine. this we have come to the end of today's episode i hope that you guys enjoyed it and learned from it inshallah in the next episode sheikh mustafa umar is joining me again this season and we are going to be uh, spending two episodes together talking about shari perspectives related to gender roles and gender non-conformity as well as gender transitioning and other contemporary issues until then, stay safe and healthy. This has been Mubin Vaid and Wahid Jensen in A Way Beyond the Rainbow. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh.